The following is a sermon from Christ Memorial Church. We are a multi-site church in the St. Louis area. We are compelled by two words, loved and sent. We believe everyone is loved deeply by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and everyone is sent with great purpose wherever they go. You can find out more about us at cmstl.org or reliantchurch.org. Enjoy the following sermon. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to be uh, in the St. Louis area. I, I hail from Texas, so I was telling a few folks earlier, this is a slight change in weather for me. Just a, yesterday I was in my backyard, my shorts and t-shirt, just chilling. Today I need a coat. So, but it, it's great to be here. And as, as with all these events that I speak at, first of all, thank you for being here. I mean, it, it's a Friday night and there's a whole lot of things you could be doing. I know, because I go out on Friday nights too, but you came here. So I thank you for, for taking the time out to do that, and thank you for the invitation to come and, and speak to you about something that, well, think about this earlier. It, this, in, in some ways, I've been preparing for what I'm going to talk about tonight for like the last 25 years. I started not to say that, because if it doesn't go well, you're going to be like, man, that guy should be prepared for a little bit longer. <laughs> 30 years at least. But no, what I mean is that what we're going to talk about tonight has been something that has been itself kind of shaping me over the course of my whole adult life, and even beyond that, really. And there were times when it was shaping me quite painfully. I'll get to those in a minute. But what has happened as a result is that what I've come to learn about these wounded prayers I'm going to talk about is something that has kind of become a mission of mine. I want other people to know about them. Because I didn't. I had to sort of discover them, or the Spirit had to lead me to them. And I wish someone would have done that for me so that I knew exactly where to turn when I needed to know what I call the language of the languishing. I want to begin, though, by talking a little bit about language itself. How many of you have little ones, like under five, or have raised kids. All right, a lot of hands. Well, you know, it, it's amazing when they begin to learn language, right? Because first of all, they just can't hardly do anything but scream, right? Or whimper, or make other noises. But as they get a little bit older, of course, they begin to, to pick up more of the sounds, and they say mama or dada or whatever it is. But what's going on that you don't see is everything happening inside their brain, these neural pathways that are forming as they listen to the language. I just was reading an article the other day that there was a study that was done where they took a group of kids that for a year or two had been raised in households where Chinese was the spoken language. And they were adopted. And they were adopted into families in which French was the only language that was spoken. So they took that group, and they took another group that had never been exposed to the Chinese language. And they monitored what was happening inside their brains as these two different groups listened to a dialogue in Chinese. And what was happening inside the brains of those who had spent a year or two in Chinese-speaking households was different than what was happening inside those who had never heard Chinese. In other words, the impression that was made on these kids just the first year or two of their life, just by listening to a language, was still in their brain. That's the power of language. We pick up on it early. And of course, the older we get, the more fluent we become. And maybe I grew up in a monolingual house. We only spoke Texan. It was, a, it was the only language we spoke. I didn't have any exposure to another language until I got to, got to college. But like all of you, I was learning as I went along. I got a little better in verbal communication, a little better in written communication. And then I got to college, and I was, began to learn other languages. And so I took Latin, then I took Greek, then I took Hebrew. And eventually I took Aramaic. And then because I was doing graduate study, I was forced to take... German and French. Don't ask me if I still remember all those languages. I still know Hebrew very well. But as I learned each of these languages, my brain was doing different things, and I was expanding in my linguistic abilities. This is the way, of course, that language 
works. But there's also things that happen to us sometimes where we're sort of reduced almost to a, a pre-linguistic stage. Trauma happens to people. And sometimes when go, people go through traumatic experiences, they actually lose the ability to communicate or at least to talk about whatever has happened to them. Trauma has a way of taking out language at the knees. And so it's very hard for people to express exactly what they've, what they've gone through. So any kind of traumatic experience becomes hard to verbalize. You're looking for the language in which to express it. In fact, it's almost like you need to be taught a language to put into words exactly what you went through. Now I want to return to that in, in just a minute. But first of all, I want to talk about the language of prayer. Because prayer is a language all on its own. And there, there's, an element, to, there's el- an element to the language of prayer that, that is parallel to our ability to pick up language as a child. So there's something about prayer that's just built into us. It's like kind of part of the building blocks of who we are. God created us in his image, every single one of us. So what's amazing is that sometimes you'll even have believers and unbelievers in times of crisis doing what? Praying. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like that is the the built-in reaction that God expects of us. Even if we're not going to church, even if we're not religious, even if we, we don't have any kind of connection to God or to any kind of religious community, when it gets really bad, there's something within us that just cries out to the God that we're not even sure exists. So there's this, there's this, there's this natural tendency we have that God gave us to pray. But there's another element to the language of prayer. And this is the part where there's actual learning and growth. So we start out learning pretty simple prayers. What's the earliest prayer you remember learning? Anybody? Now I lay me down to sleep. Yeah. We still teach that to our kids, right? What's another early prayer that you learned? (laughs) There you go. Or the table prayer. Yeah, maybe another table prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Maybe you learn the, uh, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, whatever it is. I taught my kids early on, anytime you hear uh, a siren, pray a real short prayer. Lord, have mercy. I still practice that. Anytime I hear a siren, just, it's, it's, it's probably the oldest Christian prayer. Lord, have mercy. Very short, kind of sums up everything that needs to be said in that moment. But of course, there's a lot to learn about prayer. There's a lot of growth that takes place. There's a lot of what we would call, I guess, prayerful linguistic expansion. We're learning more about what it means to pray. And we're learning about how to pray in different kinds of situations, too. Because if you're praying with a friend who's gone through some traumatic experience, you're going to be praying differently than if you're praying at the dinner table. Or if you're praying in church. Or if you're praying with someone who's just a little bit anxious about something. Every situation is going to call for a little bit different expression of whatever those needs are for that individual and what they're facing. I think the challenge that we face today in a lot of different churches is that we haven't done a good job. In fact, in some cases, we haven't done a job at all of teaching how to pray when you're angry at God or you feel like God has turned against you. Or I think probably the worst of all, you feel like God just doesn't give a damn about you anymore. How in the world... Do you talk to God when it feels like he's turned his back and walked out the door? Or how do you, how do you talk to God when 
your, your favorite hymn is no longer what a friend we have in Jesus, but what a foe we have in Jesus. How, how do you, when you, when you feel this desire to reach out to him, despite all of the turmoil that's going on inside you, how do you do that when you're not even sure if he's listening? In fact, sometimes when you don't even know if you want him to listen, or when you're just so seething with anger that you don't even know what to say. Well, I want to answer that question, or at least begin to answer that question tonight. And one of the reasons that I want to is because it's deeply personal for me. About a dozen years ago, I was driving a truck in the oil fields of the Texas Panhandle. I don't know how many of you know a little bit about my backstory, so I'll give you a real, real short uh, summary of it. Up until my mid-30s, my life was on track exactly where I wanted it to be. And I'd had a relatively easy life, all things considered. I was raised in a, uh, a healthy Christian family. I went on to college, I went on to seminary, I served a church as a pastor for a few years, and then I was hired by the seminary that I'd attended as a student to become a professor with the understanding that I would begin to work on my PhD while I was, was teaching, so do both these things simultaneously. Well, it just so happened that this, this was my dream come true. This was everything I wanted. I mean, this is what I'd wanted for years. Ever since I set foot inside my first seminary classroom, I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to be a professor. And so everything just fell into place. And when it did, everything began falling apart. The moment my dreams came true, my self-created nightmare began. I'll save you the gory details, but I basically blew up my life. Everything that I'd worked so hard to obtain that I thought was now my, my achievement instead of God's gift, I ruined. And so I lost basically everything that I had striven so long and so hard to obtain. I lost my marriage, ended in divorce, uh, lost everyday contact with my kids, and it was reduced to every other weekend. I lost my job, I lost my career, I lost my reputation, everything. And my job, of course, had been a job in the church. So all about God and all about how we connect with him and how he connects with us. Well, about a year or so after I chose the nuclear option and blew up everything in my life, I had to remake my life. So I moved to where my kids were. This is in the Texas Panhandle. And the only job that I could find that was, you know, going to, pay a fairly decent salary to take care of me and the kids was driving a truck. There weren't a lot of job openings for Hebrew professors in a small town in the Texas Panhandle. Uh, so I got my CDL and I got a job and I worked nights. If you're familiar with my book, Night Driving, that's where the, the title comes from. Well, while I was night driving, I was out in the middle of nowhere, as I always was every night, and... A lot of the wells that I serviced were down low, and so you had to go drop down to, uh, to service them, and then you had to drive back out. And well, there had been a lot of rain and snow, and it had melted, and you had mud everywhere, and so I got stuck, which happened on occasion. The only problem with getting stuck is you're going to be there for hours waiting for a bulldozer to come pull you out. Now, this was a bad situation for me. I don't know what I was thinking in taking this job, because I was going to be stuck by myself in the dark for hours on end, with nothing to do but think about how I had royally screwed up my life. I really needed better friends back then. Like, don't do this. But that's where I was at. And in some ways it was good because this was God's way to get me alone without any distractions and to start to work on me, kind of poke me, and sometimes hit me and twist me around and get me all worked up so he could finally get me where he wanted me to be. But I didn't know he was doing that. All I knew is that I was angry with everything. Angry with myself, angry with other people, and I was really angry with God. I was blaming everything on him, which is one of our old tactics that we use. 
Well, this night I got stuck. And it'd be several hours before anyone showed up. So I did carry a copy of the Psalms with me in the truck hat. So I thought I got better than nothing better to do. So I pulled out the copy of the Psalms. Now keep in mind, I'd been an Old Testament professor, so I knew the Psalms. I knew about the Psalms. I taught Hebrew. The Psalms were written in Hebrew. I had, I had a lot of head knowledge about what the Psalms were about. But they weren't part of the marrow of my bones. They weren't part of the, the blood flowing through my veins. They hadn't had their way with me. But that night they began to. I opened up the Psalms and I just began to read one after the other. And I discovered this is exactly what I had needed. This was exactly what I'd been looking for. And it was right in front of me the whole time. Because what I discovered in the Psalms of David is someone who is very often angry with God, questioning God, challenging God, asking him, where the hell are you? Why have you forgotten me? Are you asleep? Have you changed? Are you no longer going to be gracious? All of these questions are part of the Psalms. And they'd always been there, but I just never had seen them. And, and I know now why I had never seen them, because I never needed them before. But as soon as I needed them, and I began to pray through these, I realized that this was the language that I'd been missing. Here I was able to verbalize all the turmoil that was going on inside me. And I wasn't just able to verbalize it. This is the amazing part. God gave these words to me in order that I might speak them back to him. It's the beautiful thing about the Psalms. They're God's words to us that become our words back to God. And they weren't just that, but they were blessed words. God actually said, I want you to take me to task. I want you to say things that you don't hear in church. I want you to challenge me in ways that people sometimes consider to be on the verge of sacrilegious. I'm giving you these words to say so that you can then speak them back to me. And what happens, what happened as I began to pray through these, is it was almost as if it wasn't so much that I was praying the Psalms, but that the Psalms were praying me. They took over. They took charge. And they began to mold and to reshape and to kill and to make alive. And finally, to help me to work through the fury and the confusion and the bitterness that I've been struggling with for years. I really think that the Psalms saved my life because they finally got me to the point to where I was able to talk to God in a way that was more like a barroom brawl <laughs> than a Sunday school room. That's kind of the way these Psalms struck me. So that's why the Psalms especially what are called the Psalms of Lament, that I like to call wounded prayers. That's why they mean so much to me. And that's why I like to talk about them. I like to talk about not just the, 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 these wounded prayers, but kind of where they had their origin and biblical stories that are connected with them. And to kind of put all this together where it leads, and that is to how Christ himself at the moment when he was revealing to us in, in, in the greatest clarity possible who he is and what he's willing to do for us, when, when that was going on, of all things, he prays a psalm. 
So that's where I want to take us uh, over just the next few minutes, talk about a little bit of these other stories and how they're all connected to what Christ himself prayed. Anyone want to, don't, don't feel like you have to just sit there and listen. If you have a question or a comment, jump in any time. Yes. Yeah. For those of you, might, we're, we're going to put this out later, so I'll repeat your questions so they can hear it. Yeah. Uh, so at, uh, at the time all this was going on was an active part of a church. And the answer is a definitive no. No. And that was, and that was uh, on purpose. Yeah, I was, I was very, very disenchanted with the church. Uh, I, I was extremely disenchanted with pastors for a whole variety of reasons, some legitimate, some not. Uh, but, yeah, I, 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 did, I was not part of an act, active part of a church, uh, and that was because I, every time that I went... Uh, it was, a, it, was, it was a bad experience because I was angry with God the entire time. Yeah. So it, it was a strange thing. And I don't know if some of you maybe have gone through something like this, but maybe not with God, but maybe with somebody else. It's like you got a kind of a love-hate relationship, you know? It's like there was part of me that, that, that loved God and really wanted to get back to, together with Him. At the same time, there was part of me that hated Him and wanted to, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I really wanted to do that, but I was going to fight dirty. I was going to, I was, I was going to win because you know, I was going to have like brass knuckles or something. That was, that was kind of where I was at. So it was, it was a real love-hate kind of relationship that I had with him. And I don't want to go too far astray, but part of my problem at that time was I wasn't going to church. You know, I, I, was, I was a one-man kind of spiritual, messed-up, cancerous war that was going on inside me. And I, didn't, I wasn't relying on anybody else because I'd cut myself off from everybody. So it was, it was bad, let's put it that way. Uh, but that was where I was at, you know. And uh, looking back now, I thank God for putting up with me and bringing me through that and shaping me in ways that I didn't see at all at the time and that I'm still figuring out. But, yeah, that was my, that was my situation. Anybody else? Okay, uh, I want to talk about, just, just for a, a couple of minutes, the very first occurrence of a wounded prayer in the Scriptures. I find it fascinating. In fact, it's one of the, for me, it's one of the most fascinating biblical stories that we have. And you don't go very far into the Bible before you run right into it, and it's like a, it's a crime scene, basically. I'm not talking about Genesis 3, which is usually the chapter we go to, or Adam and Eve, have the dialogue with the serpent, and we have the, the fall and all of that. And that, I mean, that's, that's bad. But I like to go a chapter beyond that. One of my favorite stories in Scripture, only because I think it's so revelatory of the human experience and of our relationships with each other and with God. It's a story of Cain and Abel. It's very short. Genesis 4, I think maybe it's 13 verses, something like that. But, but I think that once you get past the story of Cain and Abel, you have basically all the knowledge that you need about humanity compressed into one particular story. And not just about humanity, but also about how we express our dissatisfaction with God by taking it out on other people. You really have the, the whole human story writ small in that tiny story of Cain and Abel. Probably familiar with it. Cain and Abel are probably twins. Uh, at least that's kind of the way the Genesis account runs. They're probably twins, the first children born. And I think Cain and Abel are like the first two human beings. What I mean is this. It, it's kind of hard to identify with Adam and Eve. You ever thought about that? I mean, they don't even have a birthday. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't grow up. You know, they just like, Adam is formed, here's a man. Eve is formed from Adam's rib, here's a woman. You know, skips the whole awkward middle school years. I can't really identify with people like that. But, 
Yeah, do they have belly buttons? Great question. We'll find out in the heavenly school, right? Yeah. But you got Cain and Abel. I mean, how did they come about? A little rolling the hay, right? That's the way they came about. Just like all of us. And they grow up and they have birthdays and they, they go through that strange middle school age and and they have to, you know, they have to learn how to deal with life and a family in the midst of a fallen world. And they got siblings and all this stuff going on. So, I mean, we can roll with, with Cain and Abel. We, we understand them. I don't know about Adam and Eve. They're just a little weird. But, but Cain and Abel, they're human beings, just like all of us. And you can, you can see the human emotions going on with Cain and Abel. Because remember how it all starts. They, they both go to church, Right? And Cain offers a sacrifice, and Abel offers a sacrifice. And God is pleased with Abel's. Abel's the younger of the two. Abel, God is pleased with Abel's, but he's not pleased with Cain's. And we're really not told why. I mean, there's some later scriptures that give us a little insight, but in Genesis 4, we're not told why. God looked favorably on Abel, and he didn't look favorably on Cain's. And what's Cain's reaction? Can you remember? He, he's, first of all, he's, he's angry, right? Yeah, yeah. Literally in the Hebrew, it says his face fell. Kind of like we, that old English word crestfallen. It's kind of the same idea, like his face fell. He's, he's angry. Who's he angry at? God. He's mad at God. Keep this in mind. He's, he's not mad at Abel. There's no, there's no evidence that he's, that he's mad at his brother, per se. But he's definitely mad at God. And what does he say to God? Nothing. Keep that in mind. Nothing. What does God say to him? Actually, quite a bit. God has a conversation with him. He talks to him. He's like, why are you mad? Why why'd your face fall? Why, why are you angry? And he says, sin's crouching at your door. You better look out. You know, it's like a wild animal right outside your door. It's waiting to jump in and get you. So be careful. And what does Cain do? Well, I mean, what does Cain say? Again, nothing. No, why didn't you accept my sacrifice? What's going on? What am I doing wrong? I'm a little upset here, God. So what's happening? Nothing from Cain. And I think that is, that is probably the worst thing that he could not have done. I thought a lot about this with regard to people today who are just filled with anger. And sometimes that anger shows because they take a gun to work or they'll take a gun into a school or they'll take a gun to themselves or both. They're angry. And I think a lot of times they're not angry so much at other people. They're angry at God. They're angry at life itself, which they don't realize is actually being angry at God. They just know they're, they're filled with fury and they don't have anywhere to go with it except at other people. And that's exactly what Cain ends up doing. He doesn't, he had the chance to speak to God. He had the chance to be honest before him. But instead, he takes out his anger against God by killing his brother. He speaks to his brother. We don't know what he said, but he speaks to his brother. And out in the field, he rises up and he kills him. Now, here we come to the fascinating part of the story. Because this is the first prayer that we ever hear in the Bible. And it's not prayed by a person. It's prayed by a person's blood. Remember this? Yeah. God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? And Cain says, finally, finally speaks to God, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm not my brother's keeper, am I? With the implication being that that'd be your job. And then God says, the voice of the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. What have you done? Isn't that fascinating? The very first 
cry of lament. The very first wounded prayer issues from the blood of the innocent. It cries out to God, and God hears it. I think there's, there's, there's three things you can learn from just that one little part of the story. Blood has a voice, and that voice cries out to God, and God hears it. It's the voice of prayer. It's the voice of one who has been the victim of violence. It's the one who's the first martyr. And it's the one, interestingly, that the book of Hebrews links to Christ. There's a verse in Hebrews which says that the blood of Christ speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, it doesn't say that they say different things. Sometimes there's a, there's, a, there's a Lutheran hymn that I don't like. Am I being recorded, by the way? It's a very popular Lutheran hymn that I don't like. It's called Glory Be to Jesus. Well, I don't like the whole, I mean, it's not the whole hymn, but there's this one line in there. You, you probably know it if, you, uh, if you've been in Lutheran churches for a while. Uh, Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies. Do you guys know this? Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. It's a great sentiment, but it's not biblical. Because there's nothing whatsoever in the biblical story which says that Abel's blood was crying out for vengeance. Get my brother for me, God. He killed me. I want you to get him. There's no, there's no element of vengeance there. It just says the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. So when Hebrews says it speaks better than the blood of Abel... They're just saying, yeah, I mean, Abel's, Abel, Abel's blood might have been pleading for clemency. Who knows? Or set things right. You know, bring about some sort of justice, not vengeance. Uh, but the blood of Christ speaks better. Because it's the blood of the one who cries out to God. And whose voice is heard. And the effect of that is that we actually receive mercy. Because the blood of Christ cries out on our behalf. So from this first story, from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, we get a very good picture of what's going on with humanity. Where you have this relationship between two different people that's expressed in violence because the one is angry at God and doesn't say a thing about it. It's one of the reasons I'm thankful that God brought me to lament is because I could see myself doing something like Cain did. I was at the point where I was so angry at other people that, yeah, I mean, I had, I had, some, I had some pretty uh, rated R fantasies of revenge going on in my head, rated R for violence. And I had a lot of time to think about what I'd like to do to people. Thank God that I didn't. And thank God that he gave me a way to kind of express that anger toward him through prayers that he himself gave me to pray. Any questions on Cain and Abel? I'm going to jump to another story right quick. All right. That's a good question. We're not told what it was, but I think one important thing to keep in mind about that, Mark, is it's different than the way that ordinarily is interpreted. Most of the time when people think of the mark of Cain, they think of like a bullseye. Sort of. It, it was like a bad thing. Oh, God put a mark on Cain. But if you read the story, it's actually the exact opposite. Cain, I'm glad you asked the question. Cain finally does speak to God. Interestingly, he pleads for mercy. And God gives it to him. He doesn't strike him down. God does give him mercy. Because he's afraid somebody's going to kill him. And so God puts a, a mark, a sign on Cain, and we have no idea what it, what it was. But whatever it was, it was God's way of protecting him from those who might seek him harm. So even after this first murder, God actually shows mercy to the murderer himself. Anything else? Okay. Now, maybe you're not I want to shift gears a little bit. Maybe you're not dealing with violence. Maybe you're, maybe you're not dealing with 
you know, kind of this, this anger toward God that might express itself in violence. But I guarantee you there's other things. And it could be that you're in a situation where either now or in the future, where you're still going to church, but it feels like your life as it once was or as you want it to be, it's just kind of falling apart. And it's confusing, and it's left you feeling bitter and lost, and it seems as if God has somehow not held up his end of the bargain. So how do you deal with that? Well, the person I like to, to turn to for this, I, lo- I love this lady. Her name is Naomi, and she's in the book of Ruth. I don't know if you remember, Ruth is, like, e- e- people either like know Ruth really well, or they don't know it hardly at all. It's like one, one of the two, it seems, in, in my experience. So I'm just going to talk about the very beginning of Ruth. Because I think, when I picture Naomi, I picture one of these people like every Sunday, she's in church. She sits in the same pew. She shakes the pastor's hand when she's leaving. Good sermon, pastor. Thank you. She's singing joy to the world. I mean, she's there. But on the inside, not really. Because it, it seems like her life just, it's not what it's supposed to be. It used to be a lot better. And now it's and now it's kind of falling apart because you've, you've lost people or you feel disappointed or you're dealing with, with anxiety over family members or whatever it might be. Well, in, in, in Naomi's case, she and her husband have two sons and they live in Bethlehem and they are experiencing a famine in that area, so they have to, I mean, they live by the land, so they, they have to move somewhere else, and so they, they move to another land, to the land of Moab. And everything is going fine for a while. I mean, they had to uproot themselves, but at least they're in a place that has some soil and some, and some crops, and so they're able to work, and their two sons, they find wives, and everything we can tell about her relationship with her daughters-in-law, by positive, it's great. And then one by one, the dominoes start to fall. Her husband dies. And then either both sons die together or they die one after the other. It's not completely sure from the story itself. But poor Naomi goes from being a wife and a mother and having these two daughters-in-law to being a widow and to losing both her sons. Now, this is the exact opposite of most stories like this in the Bible. Most of the time in Bible stories, when someone goes into exile, they come back full. So Abraham and Sarah go into Egypt, they come back rich. The Egyptians, uh, the Israelites go into Egypt later, they come back rich. Jacob leaves on his exile, he comes back rich. So you leave empty, you return full. Naomi broke that pattern. She left full, and she returned empty. So right away, it's like, this story isn't right. This is not the way things ought to be. Now, Naomi, I think, personifies this tug of war that goes on inside us between wanting to say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, that Job of like chapter 2, and then the Job of chapter 3 who says, Cursed be the day of my birth. It's like, which Job are you going to be? Which Naomi are you going to be? Well, which Christian are you going to be? Because I guarantee you, we go between both of these poles. Because there's part of us that sometimes want to, just want to say, all right, God, you're, you know best, and so I'm going to try and trust you. And then there's part of us that wants to fight him every inch of the way. And that's kind of where Naomi's at. When she's talking to her daughters-in-law, she's like, May God show loving kindness to you and give you another husband and a family of your own. So kind of positive, godly speech, right? Well, let's kind of telescope the story a little bit. Naomi ends up going back to Bethlehem with Ruth, just the two of them. The other daughter-in-law goes home. And remember what she says when she gets back home. 
I'll read it to you. So they, they come to Bethlehem. They've been away a while. And the women are like, is that Naomi? Did she come home? And here's Naomi's answer. Don't call me Naomi. Which means lovely. Call me Mara. Which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And she's not done. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Pay careful attention to what she says. She doesn't say, I went out full and I came back empty. I went out full and the Lord brought me back empty. She's not saying this just happened. She's not blaming fate. She's saying, this is what God did. And then she says, why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Now, if you're Naomi's friend, what are you going to say to her at this time? Are you going to say, are you going to quote a Bible verse? Well, Naomi, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. I just want you to know, you're in our thoughts and prayers. There's a time to say that verse, and there's a time not to say that verse. Not all Bible verses are created equal for all situations. Or are you going to say, well, just be like Job, right? Kind of be the stoic. God gave, God's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What are you going to say? If you're going to say anything, maybe, maybe what you ought to say is, let's pray some psalms together. Let's pray Psalm 13, or let's pray Psalm 44, or any of the other 40% of the book of Psalms, which are lament in nature. 40% of the hymn book of Israel is in some way or fashion a lament. It's huge. I think if I was Naomi's pastor or her, or her friend, besides just listening to her, that's what I would encourage. So you've changed your name to Mara from Naomi. Now you're no longer lovely, but you're, you're bitter. That's okay. Now, talk to God about that. Use the psalms that he's given in order to tell him exactly where you're at. You know, I, I think that's one of the problems in the broader church today is we all feel like when we go into the communion of saints, we have to be wearing the mask as if everything is okay. And we all know it's a lie. Yeah, there might be a few Sundays a year where everything's okay, but most of us, we're, we're carrying some sort of baggage when we go into church. And we need some way in which we can be real and honest and raw and be exactly who we are and express exactly what we're going through. And I'm, that's going to look different in every congregation. I know some congregations that have integrated into their worship a time when people can actually do that. But by and large, that doesn't happen because by and large, Christianity in America has adopted kind of the optimistic ethos, right? And everything's great. And we're all just going to smile and, and be happy. And, and when we do that, everything's just going to work out well. And, and we all know it's just a bunch of BS. It's not, that, not the way that life works. It's not the way that we get better by ignoring issues. And pretending that we're okay when we're not. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is they, there is no pretense. They're in your face. It's raw, sometimes brutal language. And I wish that there was some way that we could begin to recapture that in the life of the church today. 
And maybe that's simply through praying more psalms in church. Maybe that's through writing, if you're, if you're a, a songwriter or a musician, to somehow incorporate more of that into your genre, to preach about it more. Whatever it is, to integrate the, the, the praying of these psalms into the life of the community so that they, they can begin to shape our own prayers and our own understanding of what it means to be vulnerable, to be blunt with God. Instead of folding our hands and, and closing our eyes and, and bowing our heads and pretending as if everything is just okay with, with God, to open our eyes and look up into the heavens and make a fist and tell Him exactly what's going on with us and demanding that He listen. Now, that, when I say things like that, people, sometimes people get uncomfortable. Well, you're not supposed to question God. Have you read the Psalms? <laughs> Psalm 13 starts out with four questions, and they're all, how long? And they're all addressed to God. How long, O oh Lord? How long will you hide your face? How long will my, will my soul take counsel in itself? Or other Psalms, you know, like, why are you asleep? One of my favorite, I think this is Psalm 78, describes God waking up because he's been like a drunk soldier on the battlefield. Don't we have a hymn that says that? I don't think, I don't think we use that metaphor in, in hymns. It's, it's, it's like right there in the Bible, though, right? Wake up. Arouse yourself, O Lord. Why do you sleep? So there's a constant call in the Psalms for God to, to wake up. To, to act, to not walk away, to not forget. And you might be saying to yourself, well, God's God. I mean, He's, he's everywhere. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, all that. So why do we need to tell Him these things? Because He wants you to. That's why. He wants you to. He wants you to, to, to reach out to Him in these words of prayer and to tell Him exactly what it is that's going on inside you. Because in that very act itself, God is at work because you're using his words in order to, to speak that. And this is God's way of bringing you to the point where he, where he wants you to be, where you talk to him, not as, as if you're, you're, he's your boss or your master or, you know, some omnipotent, uh, powerful deity who's just ready to squash you, should be angry with you. He's your dad. He's what, the, he's what the Jews would call your, your Abba, your Father. And, and, and Christ, yeah, He's your Lord and He's your Savior, but the Scriptures also call Him your brother and your friend. I mean, these are all images that the Scriptures themselves use. So just like in any family, there needs to be at least enough love and openness and honesty where you can have a discussion and sometimes an argument and a debate and still all love each other. Well, it's kind of like that in the family of God as well. God can take that. In fact, He not only can take it, He, he wants to because He's given you these words by which to address Him. And, as a final note before we kind of open it up here, if you look at the life of Christ... First of all, Hebrews says that during his life, during the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. In other words, he was lamenting. He was engaging in what all Israelites did. He was praying the Psalms. He was offering up prayers to his Father. And then finally on the cross, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is from Psalm 22, which is the psalm of lament. Now think about this, and remember this. The cross is the ultimate epiphany of God, right? The cross is where we see God clearest. It, it's gory, but it's God's glory. This is where he shows you exactly what kind of God you're dealing with, all right? What does he do? In this, this time of, of ultimate divine epiphany, showing you who he is, what does he do? He prays a psalm of lament. So divinity and humanity are joined together in Christ. He's both God and man. And on the cross, 
he as God and man offers up to his father a prayer of lament. And the blood that he sheds on the cross is in some way already prefigured by the blood that Abel shed when Cain killed him. Because Christ is another Abel who's killed by a whole world of Cain's, including all of us. But his blood has a voice. And that blood cries out to God. And God hears it. And God is merciful to us. He answers that prayer of Christ. And as a result, we are the recipients of mercy and adoption so that we can too cry out to God as as our Father. Let me finish with with one quick story. Uh, I'm a Lutheran, but I I love listening to Bishop Robert Barron, who's an assistant bishop in uh, the Archdiocese of, of L.A. Any of you familiar with him or his work? Yeah. He told a story a while back, and when I heard it, I thought, that perfectly captures what's happening in Lament and what it, what it really is. He said that uh, this was a story told to him, I think it was in Detroit years ago. There was a woman whose husband had cancer, and he was hospitalized for a long time. And she rarely left his side. She was there to, to, to give him a drink, to, to talk to him, to, to pray with him. They were a devout Catholic family. And she was there just all the time. And you know what this had to have been doing to her because he, he kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then one day, she just had to get out. So she left the hospital. And as she walked out the door, there were a group of nuns who were standing close by, and they, they watched her. And she, she walked across the way to an area where there's a statue of the Virgin Mary. And she just lost it. She started picking up dirt and rocks and just hurling them at this statue. It's like a crazy person. And one of the sisters started to go over and stop her. And another sister took her arm and stopped her and said, no, no, she's praying. And sometimes our prayers look like that. Sometimes it feels like we're just hurling rocks and dirt at the heavens. But that's okay. Because we have a God who sympathizes with us and a God who loves us. We have a God who can take it because he wants us to be open with him. He doesn't want brown nosers speaking out to him. He wants people who are honest about what they're going through. And, and I think the best way that we can be honest in that way is by actually praying the Psalms, by using these as the model for how God wishes us to reach out to him when times are good and in times when our prayers are wounded. And we know that we need God to come and to heal us. Thank you again for listening to the sermon from Christ Memorial. If you happen to be in St. Louis or live in St. Louis, we would love to meet you and have you join us for worship on Sunday. We are located in South County, St. Louis at 5252 South Lindbergh. We also have a city site called Reliant that is located on the St. Louis University Medical Campus in Crave Coffee House. You can find all of our worship times and information at cmstl.org or ReliantChurch.org. Hope you have a good day, and remember, you are loved by God deeply through His Son, Jesus Christ, and you are sent with great purpose wherever you go. Have a good day.